So last week, I, um, the sermon was called uh, The Cycles of Grief and Grace, and I decided that I'll do a part two this week. This wasn't my original intention, but uh, there was just so much kind of stuff left to still talk about, and I was having a lot of conversations following uh, last week. So if you didn't hear last week, you'll have no clue what's going on today. That's not true. I'll do a little bit of a summary. Um, but I would encourage you to go back and hear about it. I also spoke about my own sort of life and how I've struggled with the cycles of grief and grace and struggled to live in the, the power of the gospel. This is just a model that helps us to see the gospel a little bit more clearly. It's not the most important thing that the gospel is. Jesus Christ is. What he does in people's lives is. But it's really important for us to get it right because a lot of people get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, well, everything's out of joint. And we keep trying to earn and work, and we struggle under a burden that Jesus came to relieve us of. And so today I want to keep talking about the cycles of grief and grace so that we understand what it means to live in the gospel. So that we understand what it means to live in a way that's free of a burden. And that we know wholeness, which is what we talked about all summer long with a sense of shalom that we were created for in the first place. So without uh, further ado, let me remind you of the, the cycles. You'll see the circles are very similar here, but what's different is the starting point. And we use the, the story of Nicodemus, who was a religious teacher in his day, in John chapter 3. We used his story of his encounter with Jesus to contrast the two different approaches to life. Now, with this sort of burdensome religion... The approach is to start with an achievement or the things that we do in order to try to gain some sense of significance. Now, that doesn't really sustain us. The only thing that sustains us is achieving more, doing more to gain greater significance, and that keeps us going. And ultimately, what we're aiming for is acceptance. But we only feel accepted when we do and accomplish, and so this sort of drives us, and it makes us feel this compulsion to be sort of perfect, or to kind of keep the rules. It drives us into be really task and focused and very specific in a lot of ways that aren't very grace-filled. And ultimately, it's just, it's just hard. It's a burden because there's never enough. The only way to gain more acceptance is to keep doing, to gain significance, to try and keep going and sustain ourselves, to get more acceptance, to keep going. And it's a burden and it's a problem and it never ends. It's a cycle of grief. On the other side, we saw Jesus, and we saw here that now the starting point is acceptance, and this is the message of the gospel. We are loved, period, full stop. In fact, we, we hear the words in the, in the scriptures that say that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. In other words, he accepted us long before we ever did anything to earn that. In fact, we can't earn that. It's just a gift. So the gospel says, we start from a place of acceptance. We are his. We are loved. And that gives us an incredible sustaining power. In fact, that's the, the presence of God himself, the Holy Spirit within our lives. And that gives us a sense of significance because we are his children. We belong to him. We are loved. We are loved by the creator of the universe. And now there is a sense of achievement, but 
it's based on and founded on all of the strength, the resources, the love, the life. And if you don't get it 100% right, you're still loved, you're still accepted, you're still part of it all, you're part of the family. And so the mistakes come and the mistakes go, but the acceptance, the love, the life is still ours. This is a much more stable way to live. This is a grace-filled way to live. This is the way of the gospel. This is what Jesus came to help us understand. And when we get this wrong, it's a burden. It's a struggle. And Nicodemus, ultimately, he found his way to Jesus. He was there at the cross. He spoke up. He defended him. And he chose this way of life. It's never too late to start again, to get it right. So that's last week. That's sort of the basis of it. Where do we go now? I want to take you to a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Uh, He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. His name was Zacchaeus. What's the deal with Zacchaeus? Let's go to the, the verses here. Jesus is coming to the town where Zacchaeus lives. This is Luke chapter 19. We're told two things about Zacchaeus. One, he's a tax collector. Two is that he's quite small, quite short. Now, everything else we could say about him would be some conjecture based upon those two things. First of all, I want you to know this. Tax collectors are not well-liked in any day or age. My apologies to any of you if you work for the CRA. Do not audit me. Um, But he's especially disliked because He is working as a taxation agent for the Romans who were oppressors. So essentially, he's betrayed his own people by working for the foreign oppressors. Now, I think he might have been pushed there because he was, you know, maybe he was made fun of his whole life for being short and small. He was like, well, I'll I'll show you. Come in for an audit on Tuesday. (laughs) Whatever case, whatever's going on here, Zacchaeus is not well-liked. He's notorious and he's bad. Nobody wants to be around him. And when Jesus is coming, there is something about the stories that Zacchaeus has heard that Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus for himself. So much so that he's willing to suffer an indignity in order to just get a glimpse. He's so short he can't see through the crowd. No one's letting him through, of course, because they don't like him. You know, keep him in the back. Kids, of course, get to sit up on the curb. Zacchaeus, you're in the back. So what does Zacchaeus do? He climbs a sycamore tree to see what he could see. What happens now is Jesus sees Zacchaeus. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, come, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, for someone who's been excluded and marginalized from society, for good reason, to be known, to be identified, to be recognized is something special. To have Jesus, who is the the man at the center of this parade, who he is willing to do whatever he can to see, to have that man look at him, call his name out, and say, I want to spend time with you, that's something incredible. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. 
He is gone, speaking of Jesus, he is gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Now, think about those two circles and cycles that I just described. Which one do you think is the description of the people, and which one's a description of Jesus? Let's keep going. Next slide. Nothing else has happened. This is the next verse. I haven't skipped a single thing. They've just gone to Zacchaeus' house. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus hasn't said or done anything. He's just recognized Zacchaeus and invited himself for dinner. And it changes Zacchaeus' life. Jesus doesn't ask him to do this. Zacchaeus just does it. Whatever acceptance he was looking for, whatever brokenness he had from being short stuff and marginalized, whatever barriers he directed to push people away and keep them at arm's length, Jesus has broken down in one moment and Zacchaeus lets it all go. Then Jesus responds, Salvation has come to this house today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now within this short story, we're seeing those cycles being reversed. Zacchaeus was a person who was treated as only being valuable based on his achievement. And because he was short, he was pushed aside. So what did he do? He tried to achieve by some other means, and he ripped people off. He built up his wealth on the backs of other people. But he still wasn't accepted. He still wasn't loved. What does Jesus come to do in his good news? Jesus comes and he knows Zacchaeus by name. And he invites himself into his home. Zacchaeus is accepted. He hasn't changed a bit, but that changes him. For the first time in his life, he is with somebody who cares about him as a person. And it changes his life. And he turns it all around. Let's look at the cycle here again on the next slide. Zacchaeus is accepted. And it leads to this whole new thing where he begins to take action based on what has happened as a result of that acceptance. That's the good news. That's the gospel. We're accepted, even if you're a notorious sinner. And so Zacchaeus, his life is turned around because Jesus starts treating him that way now. So I want to take from that a couple of things based on some of the questions I I heard last week and some of the reflections that I couldn't quite share for time. If this is true, if we're accepted, if we're loved, and we don't have to do anything to earn that, do we have to do anything at all? Well, clearly Zacchaeus had a response to being accepted. He had a response. It changed the way he lived. So let's look at a few verses that just give us some context for that. So there's this question of activity. What do we do? Well, when we're accepted by the Father, when you know, we live in the Father's home as the prodigal son returns, does the prodigal son 
just keep doing whatever he wants? No. He lives in the father's house by the father's way. And his other brother, who's also lost but still living at home, what does he do? Well, that's the question hanging in the air. Will he now live with his father's love, or will he keep trying to earn and work for it? 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, and then also chapter 3, verse 9. So the dot, dot, dots here are a whole chapter and some. We are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Now, we're children of God. We still make mistakes. We still sin. That's still part of the reality of this fallen world and its brokenness. But we don't make a practice of it. We live out of that acceptance. It changes us. Because if we go on living in spiritual darkness, it's like we're denying the gift that we've been given. If we go on living the way we used to, if we go on trying to gain favor by doing things and achieving ourselves, we're still living the cycle of grief instead of the cycle of grace. And so we have to start living in a new way. But now it's not out to get something, not to gain acceptance and love. Now we're doing it because we are. We can live in a whole new way. So we don't make a practice of sinning. We practice the truth. Now let's look at another verse. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. This probably... Uh, verses more than any other explains the cycle of grace uh, better than any other. We referred to them last week. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. It is a grace-filled gift that we receive of life and love. And out of that, beautiful new things happen in Jesus. This summer, we grew some things at the, the greenhouse. They're sitting over here to get sunlight, and I was noticing today that there are actually beans on that beanstalk. It's my goal to eat one of them. The lettuce doesn't look so much like lettuce yet. But if we didn't provide soil for those beans, they wouldn't grow. If we didn't water them, they wouldn't flourish. When we find ourselves rooted in the life of God, we can flourish like never before. Not because we've done something, but because we have the resources and the nourishment of God's loving kindness. When we are deeply rooted in him, rather than our own achievements, rather than in the things that we do, we have a sustaining power that gives us life and that produces fruit or beans in this analogy. We do new things. We produce new good works. Our character begins to change and transform. We are different when we are rooted in the life of Jesus and his love and acceptance. One more verse here. 
James 2, 14, and then 17 to 18. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by good deeds. We can have a bean, but if it doesn't produce another bean or a bunch of beans, okay, what was so exciting about that? It's dead if it's not in soil, if it's not watered, if it's not given what it needs to flourish. But we should produce something. And I want, to, I want you to notice here in these verses, it's not just show me your faith, like some weird Cuba Gooding Jr. thing from Jerry Maguire movie. Show me your faith! Nobody got that reference the other night with a bunch of young adults. They were all too young, and some of you are probably too old, so I've probably not hit the sweet spot with that joke. Um, show me your faith. But is that for your benefit or mine? If you're not living out your faith in a way that I can see it, I lose out too. If your faith isn't producing something new, if it's not bringing some new thing to life, I'm missing out on the beans. Which might be sustaining for me in some way, a blessing to me in some way. Living this way is not only good for us because it allows us to experience grace, it's also good for the people around us because now they get to experience that as well and are blessed by it. So there's one particular activity that I think that we should be especially focused on. It's one particular activity that Jesus did frequently in order to demonstrate the gospel and allow people to experience it even before they understood it. That's hospitality. Let's go to the next slide here. And I think what's important for us as people to begin to learn the cycle of grace in our own lives and to practice it with other people is to experience and practice hospitality. To welcome people before they believe or quote-unquote behave. Zacchaeus didn't turn his life around and then Jesus said, I'm going to honor all the hard work you've done, Zacchaeus, by showing up at your house. No, Jesus shows up and says, I'm coming to your house. And it changed Zacchaeus' life. There will be notorious sinners, I hope, coming through our doors. And our response is not to say, you have to start believing or behaving in a certain way. Our response should be to love them. Now, there may be certain behaviors we could put boundaries around that are dangerous for other people or other situations like that. We could have some qualifications to this. But our approach towards one another has to be, first of all, a loving acceptance that's radical by the world's standards. That's how Jesus lived. And that's how we are meant to experience the gospel as well. So we welcome people before they believe or behave. I had a pastor who once said it this way. You've got to catch the fish before you clean them. Maybe none of you are fisher people. You can't clean a fish if you don't have the fish. So catch the fish and then you clean it, right? 
don't expect the fish to get clean on its own and then show up in your boat. Luke 7.34, this talks about what Jesus is doing and how he's described. In fact, it's described very negatively by the world around him. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Of course, Jesus was neither a glutton nor a drunkard, but they were trying to tarnish his reputation because of the crowds that he spent time with. But such is the work of Jesus, that this is how he's known, is as a friend of sinners. Jesus spent so much time experiencing hospitality with other people, showing them they were accepted and loved even before they believed in him or behaved as if they were anywhere near the life of the kingdom. Jesus would go to them, reach out to them, be with them, loving them, showing them kindness. And it changed people's lives. Hospitality is a means by which we can show people that loving acceptance of the gospel. That doesn't always mean inviting somebody into your home, although it could. And I understand in these days and age, inviting people into your homes is a little extra difficult right now. But hospitality, the way of welcoming another, is something that we can practice wherever we are. You know, it might be showing up with a muffin for your coworker. Or it might be just sitting down and listening to them when something is happening in their life. It might be uh, participating in friendship with somebody who seems lost or confused, struggling. It might be sitting down and befriending somebody who is in a hospital or sick. It might be showing up into a prison. Sometimes we will invite people into our homes or into our lives. Other times, it will be us going to them. Regardless, it's allowing ourselves to meet in some commonality, some shared moment where there's acceptance and life and love. In the midst of that, treating someone in that way can begin to grow beautiful things. This was the pattern of Jesus. This was his model of ministry, was to show up, to be involved, to accept people, to love them, even when they were far from him. And that drew them in. And so, for us, what would it mean for you to practice hospitality in your life? Who is someone in your life who's a notorious sinner that you could call by their name, that you could speak to in friendship, that you could invite to be part of your life, even if just for a few hours or a moment? What would it mean for you to participate in hospitality, either as the host or the guest, either way round? What would it mean for you to be known and loved by another as well? I wonder if you've experienced this ever. I wonder if this type of acceptance is something you've ever known yourself. Last week when I spoke, I heard a lot of people talk about the home that they grew up in as being a home where they only were loved or shown affection if they did something right. There was always an awkward line of that in my home where we knew the gospel and tried to live it, but also kind of were, had that ingrained in all of our lives as well. 
You know, I remember showing up uh, with a math test, having got a 98%, and my father's response, although it was a joke, was, where's the other 2%? And he was joking because he knew that I could do it, but it's also that, isn't it? Some of you know that kind of vibe. What kind of relationship have you had in your family? What kind of relationship have you had with your coworkers, your boss, your friends? Is it based on achievement? Or is it based on just accepting one another in love? If you've never experienced that, I want you to know that it's available. And it's my hope that this will be a place where we express that kind of life, where we live out the gospel in the way that we treat one another. It's my hope that if you've never experienced that, that you would, maybe even today, that you wouldn't be intimidated to be vulnerable, that you wouldn't be scared to try, and that we would be embracing from six feet apart one another in love. Imagine how beautiful it would be if we all treated each other with a kind of acceptance. It doesn't mean we have to trust each other with the keys to our car or our bank card. That's not the point here. But it means that we see the person as they are and we love them the way they are. Imagine how beautiful it would be if we all treated each other that way. Imagine what it would be like for someone to come into this place and to see that, to experience it. It's a beautiful thing. And it's something that we can have here today, tomorrow, for all the days to come. And I hope that you, like me, will know that life and love of Jesus and try to live it out. And if you're not there yet, I'd love to talk to you more about how you can get there. So that you hear the voice of Jesus calling your name, inviting himself into your life, inviting you to experience something new and beautiful and better than you could have ever possibly imagined. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for how you've shown us a better way. You've shown us the way it was always meant to be and how we've gotten it backwards. Help us to trust in you, to build our lives upon your love, not our own achievement, not our own activities, but to to receive that fully and completely and allow it to go deep within our own hearts and minds to so fully transform the way we think that it transforms the way we act and live and the way we relate to other people. May we experience your graceful hospitality in our own lives and invite others to be a part of that as well. In the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus, who makes this all possible.